Tis the month of St. Patty's Day, and here's a random related fact. Did you know that the odds of finding a lucky four-leaf clover are 1 in 10,000? I'd say that's pretty difficult. Fortunately, if you're a business owner or hiring manager, you don't need luck to find top talent for your team. You need ZipRecruiter, and right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bob. You don't need a leprechaun when ZipRecruiter's brilliant technology is going to walk you right to that pot of gold of top talent. As soon as you post your job, ZipRecruiter powerful technology starts showing you the best qualified candidates for it. Aren't you just a wee bit curious to see how ZipRecruiter can help you? Well, today's your lucky day because you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Bob. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Once again, just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Bob. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Welcome back to another divulgatory episode of Talking Lamar. This time, I'm telling you everything about the Ghostbuster movies you just might not know. And I ain't afraid of no ghost. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Sorry, I forgot what I was talking about. What are you talking about? I am talking to you. That's just what I was talking about. It's Talking Lamar. I don't know if everybody knows a little or all these things about the original Ghostbusters. What a great, groundbreaking, tremendous movie it was when it came out. I know y'all remember what it was like when the first one came out. It was unbelievable. Oh, yeah. It was different yeah. than anything else because it combined sort of science fiction special effects with comedy, and that hadn't been done before. And you had some really, really great comedians doing it. Oh, yeah. I, I, it, it was just what a what a star cast it was. But... Dan Ancroyd actually conceived the concept for Ghostbusters. Dan Ancroyd had this big fascination with ghosts on and off the screen. He, he is known for spending a lot of his spare time investigating the paranormal and other unexplained phenomena. And um, he was just very interested in things that go bump in the night. And ultimately, it was his interest in the supernatural that spawned the concept of Ghostbusters. He conceived the ghost hunting comedy while reading a para, uh, para how do I say it? Parapsychology, para, I'm sorry. Yeah, parapsychology. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Parapsychology journal. And his fa- you would know Sherry above anybody. Uh, his family's <laughs> farmhouse. And he, he's thinking, I think I'll devise a system to trap ghosts. Then I will marry it to the old ghost films of Costello and Bob Hope because he was a big fan of their comedy. And so the first pass of the script was way different than what the movie turned out to be. Uh, Dan Ancroyd's initial concept was a darker, more futuristic ghost uh, movie that it would see the film's characters travel through time and space to battle dozens of otherworldly spirits. Well, (laughs) director Ivan Rittman, who was also in charge with getting a studio on board, he estimated that the grittier sci-fi version would have cost 10 times as much as the classic that we know about. And that was back in the eighties. It would have cost 300 million. That's what he estimated. That's what it would cost wow. 300 million. And in the eighties, that was huge. So they decided to go a different way. A five word pitch is what sealed the deal. And those those five words were ghost janitors in New York. <laughs> Frank 
Frank Price, the then he was a studio, he was a head at Columbia Pictures. He greenlit the film just on that basic uh, basic premise. The fact that Dan Aykroyd, Bill Murray, and Harold Ramis were already on board probably didn't hurt. I mean, anybody that knew them knew they could they were capable. Uh, the wisdom. But the, what, in that say town, it again. The five words: ghost janitors. Janitors in New York. In New York. Yeah. yeah, ghost janitors. <laughs> and uh, he said that the wisdom in town was that I had made a terrible mistake. That's what Price said. Uh, it was an interview a few years later, but it wasn't a mistake. Now, they only gave them the studio only gave them one year to make everything happen. That's not much time to write, film, and release a picture, but they needed it to coincide with the summer movie season. And although an initial draft was already completed, the final production script would take the three guys several weeks to nail down before they could move into pre-production. And it was a very tight schedule, which obviously had a few things going on along the way. One of the big things was the Ghostbusters green blob with uh, that gluttonous appetite and the film's free-roaming library lady that was scaring everybody all the time. Those are just two of the things that come out of of the special effects that had to go into this movie. And the 80s was wide open for filmmaking. So a lot of the special effects companies, they were booked out with major projects. Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, Star Wars, Return of the Jedi, all kinds of movies were coming out. So consequently, Ivan Reitman enlisted Industrial Light and Magic uh, alumni Richard Edlund to set up a special visual effects company of their own just for them, and they got Columbia to pay for it. So they had their own company, and they called it the Boss Film Studios. And, you know, even after this movie was over, they stayed intact, and they wound up making uh, visual effects for over 30 films from 1983 to 1997. Die Hard, Batman Returns, Trouble in Little China. That's a great story. I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. It's like, it's like there's a whole cottage industry that come around this movie. Now, the cast almost included Eddie Murphy and John Candy. Uh, when Ancroyd was first writing the script, he thought Eddie Murphy, John Belushi, and himself as the three main characters. But then Belushi passed away. So Bill Murray was eventually tapped to be the new Peter Vinkman. Now, as for John Candy... He was originally approached to play the role of Lewis Tully, but a few obstacles prevented that from happening. Candy envisioned a much different persona, and he also wanted the character he played to take more of a starring role in the film. That sort of surprises me because you don't think of John Candy as, you know, I want to be the star or whatever. Having that kind of ego, yeah. Yeah, But you know what? I mean... That's what it's all about. I mean, if you can be the star, I guess you want to be the star. But they wanted to keep their original vision for Tully, and so they selected Rick Moranis. And not only was Rick Moranis ready and willing to play the character, he he already had the clothes. He dressed like that to start with. I mean, he was Lewis <laughs> Tully, so so he was the perfect uh, the perfect guy to pick. So we're gonna take a little break. We'll come back and uh, do some more. Welcome back. We're talking about the original movies, Ghostbusters. And Michael Keaton was initially cast 
as the scientist Peter Vinkman. The role, written for the late John Belushi, was seen as a good fit for Keaton because he was very popular at this time. So he auditioned, and he was cleared for the part until Bill Murray expressed interest in the project, and he eventually replaced Keaton in that role. And basically, they say, it all comes down to who you know. Bill Murray knew Reitman. They were friends from previous work together in Stripes. Ivan Reitman. I'm, I'm, I can't remember what Reitman. I always pronounce his name Reitman. Wrong. But, uh, but they were friends because I, I remember them in Stripes. God, that's a great movie that nobody ever thinks about. It is a terrific movie. But you oh, know what? God. Michael Keaton... Michael Keaton didn't do Ghostbusters, but he went on to Immortality as Beetlejuice with yeah. Tim Burton. Yeah, so he didn't. Yeah, it, it worked out okay for it him. It didn't hurt him. Yeah, it, yeah. it did. It didn't hurt him. Um, <clears throat> now, while unable to be in the film because Belushi was had passed away, he was there in spirit. Dan Aykroyd wanted to honor his late friend, and he brought to life the first apparition the gang would face. Slimer. The gluttonous Slimer ghost. Slimer is Belushi? Yeah. That's Belushi. Yeah. Yeah. He is, uh, he is an official, unofficial homage to the late, great John Belushi, which is pretty cool. That's so cool. Yeah. Yeah, but they didn't tell them that until, like, less. So they already had the Slimer character, right? And so they said, yeah, yeah we want it to look like John Belushi. And they looked at it and went, oh, we're just going to act like this is supposed to be John Belushi. <laughs> <laughs> and they went, oh, yeah, great. Looks just like him. <laughs> this is like, yeah, it's a caricature of John Belushi. <laughs> now, here's one that really surprised me. Sigourney Weaver, her audition was just her acting like a dog. No words were spoken. They, uh, She did an interview what? years at. Yeah, she did an interview years after this movie was out with Rolling Stone. And Weaver, instead of saying words or acting out any kind of script, she turned into one of Gozer's hounds, snarling and snapping and biting and heaving and running around the room like she was an animal. And... Wow. Reitman, Reitman, Reitman was so impressed. He was so impressed and somewhat terrified. He gave her the gig. Can you? I'm, I'm just trying to visualize her running around like a dog. I mean, the things that crazy. I mean, Max can speak to this. The 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 decisions that you have to make as an actor auditioning, knowing that you're one of like however many. You have to sometimes do something, hundreds. You have to do something yeah. to break through. You really do. And of course, she had just come out of doing those. Um, alien movies yeah or what and so i mean she was she was looking to do something different and she really really wanted to do something that was comedic and fun yeah i, uh, I wonder if that decision though to really to be one of gozar's hellhounds i wonder <laughs> what made her do that it worked obviously yeah now <clears throat> they had a really tight timeline to get the movie finished and so the special effects supervisors had to make some quick decisions to get the right shot for example, the scene of Slimer uh, spinning around the ballroom of the Cedric Hotel was actually just a peanut spray painted green. 
and they just like that's all it was. And was they a did peanut. it as a miniature. Paper. They just did it yeah. as a miniature. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Bill Murray <clears throat> has openly criticized the sequel for focusing too much on the effects and not enough on the original comedic magic of the film. And and he might be right in the fact that as you're able to make more special effects, you have a tendency to use them. They used all they could do in the original. It wasn't like they were holding back. They had a budget and, you know, different things. So I don't know that it's right to criticize the next movie to come out to to say that they're focusing too much on that. I don't know if they were or not, but, you know, the, the second one didn't do very well. The first but one you was know, great. I've, I've read so many different um, takes on movies and remakes where in when the movie was first made, they only had what are called practical effects. You know, you could do like uh, optical tricks with camera placement yeah. and lenses. Yeah. You could do stop motion. Um, there were all sorts of ways you could create movie magic with practical effects. But then here comes CGI and now AI. And there, there's a certain charm in those like really stripped down practical effects. There's um, a, an organic authenticity to it that you miss when everything is super um, computer on, don't you think? Oh, I do. And I think when you go back, when you go back to look at uh, uh, the, the Bible story where they, uh, Moses split the Red Sea and you look at that and think about what they were capable of or what they weren't capable of then, but you look at that, it was amazing. Takes your breath away, that, yeah. At that time, at that time, you're just like, oh my gosh. And even now, if you go back and look at it, you have to give them credit. Uh, Gabriel, my son Gabriel, he likes movies okay. He's not dead, you know, crazy about them. But in his head, he got in his head years ago that if a movie has been made longer than five years ago, they had no technology and it would be a waste of time to go see. So I took him to see the brand new, um, not Alien, uh, what's the one that was Schwarzenegger with the uh, uh, my mind just went blank on it not Predator Terminator yeah, predator. Yeah. Predator. no no not Terminator okay. Predator so I took him to see a brand new Predator and so we go and see it and he said oh, yeah it was pretty good I said this is okay okay I said but you have to see the original and he goes oh my gosh that thing was made years and years ago he said there's no technology back then. It would, it would be terrible. And I'm like, really? So I went Let's and bought watch. a copy. I went and bought a copy and we sit down and after the movie, he goes, Oh, that was unbelievable. I said, yeah, I, I said, yeah, things are very different now, but they could still do stuff. I mean, everybody found a way to do it. And you know, well, and sometimes, you know, poverty is a virtue when it comes to the arts, sometimes, because if you think about um, how little money the Blair Witch Project was made for, yes. and yet yes. and yet, a bundle of twigs and some shaky cam, and you about wet yourself in a movie theater. Yes. So, and Psycho, yeah. the, the Hitchcock film Psycho, huh. it is a masterpiece of editing and music. You've got that score. Right yeah. up against the oh, yeah. gazillion edits and then the um, swirl of blood. It's a black and white movie, so it was actually Hershey syrup, but the swirl of blood 
going down the drain. And yeah. then the next thing, the camera is in the pupil, Janet Lee's character's pupil. And it's the slowest pullout in the world. And you see that she's lying there dead in the shower. So how did they do that? That's actually a photograph of Janet Lee that the camera pulled. Because you, you'll notice that she's completely flat, dead, and lifeless. Extraordinary yeah. performance, right? But that's a black and white photo of Janet Lee that the camera did that slow, slow pull out for. You never once saw the knife touch her flesh, right, Max? Never. Nope, nope, you didn't. You saw the you knife. You saw the knife saw the come shower down curtain. and up. Down yeah. and up. Down, down and, and up. up. And they, and they so made the noise, I think, by a, putting it in a melon. Yeah. So you you have the music, the sound effects. You see the knife. You see the shower curtain. You see her. You see the water. You see the blood. But you never you never saw all of like the the actual grim gruesomeness. Today, slasher movies. I just watched one not too long ago by mistake. I didn't know what it was, and it was like, oh my god, I'm gonna have nightmares. It was vile. Like it was a savage, vile, violent attack on a human body. So yeah, maybe the olden days where we didn't have quite so much to work with, um, that wasn't always a bad thing, right? Well, I think today, boy, guy, I don't want to sound like the get off the lawn guy, but the effects are so striking. And the more effects we get, the more we expect. And yep. it's almost like, I don't know. And if you're a director, if you think about it, Hitchcock, he had to come up with a way to terrify, and he did, and he did it with what he had. Now, if you're a director, you can get anything you want to done on the computer with the CGI, but now it opens it up so far. It, number one, it takes away some of your directorial expertise, and it gives you so many options I mean, Hitchcock only had a few things he could do, and he made the best use possible out of it. So I don't know if it was easier to make movies back then than it is now. I don't know. And and I, the and the more gruesome we get, the more we get. Eh, what was that? Eh, no big deal. Eh, like we're just know. desensitized, and like I, you know, yeah. people have different things that they find enjoyable. Some people really like like a gory, graphic, explicit slasher film. But for me, the fear, and this is just me, the fear comes from the suspense and the not knowing, the jump scare. Um, the only thing that comes from actually seeing a human skull split in two with a cleaver is disgust and horror and like, oh my God, I'm never going to unsee that. So I like, I liked the original Ghostbusters because it felt so loose and goofy and yeah. barely held together with tape and paper clips. And it was that lack of slickness that gave it a lot of its charm for yeah. me. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I agree. I, I mean, I, I do agree. Now, because, again, they were in a rush, uh, The only they only made one of the Ghostbuster machines, the cars. They only made one. And it was a Cadillac ambulance. And... <clears throat> typically movies that have an, uh, a car or something like that that you're going to use over and over and over, they got a bunch of them. They've got different ones that they wreck. They got different ones that they do this and do that, but budget, budget, budget. They only had one and the vehicle made it all the way through the movie. And 
it died during the final scene. But you're kidding. They didn't have that's to do it. Perfect. It wrapped it right there. That's when it that's when it died. Uh now the uh the Stay Puffed but, uh, Marshmallow Man. Originally it was supposed to come out of the ocean and it was going to cost too much money. They were going to have it come out of the ocean like Godzilla, and it was going to be standing next to the Statue of Liberty and blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, they're like, this is going to cost a fortune. And so they made suits for this. They made three suits that they used and tore them to pieces in the production. Each one of those suits cost $20,000. Now, that doesn't sound too much to us now as far as movie budgets go. But back in the eighties, that was a lot of money. I mean, that, that was a lot of money. And for the massive explosion at the end of the film, everybody raided their bathroom cabinets to gather gallons and gallons of shaving cream so that they could simulate the falling blobs of mush uh, of uh, marshmallows in the, in the shower scene. Um, I, that was that was one of the highlights I think of the movie was watching the marshmallow because you're expecting this terrible terrible creature and it's the marshmallow man. It was really cool. It was that very smart. is. I'm glad you brought that up because there are just a handful of moments in movies where you are genuinely so surprised, and that one was one of those moments. Because you're right, the last thing in the world you were expecting was the Stay Buffed Marshmallow Man. It was just yeah. the last. <laughs> yeah. And and oh. it also was one of the things that the, he did have early early in the process. That was a part of the, the script early in the process, too. Yeah. So um, that one kept, got kept. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they had one guy that was tasked with creating all of the iconic gear. Everything from the proton packs to the red and white Ecto-1 was all crafted by Stephen Dane. And Reitman hired him to tell the story through the props, and he was given only two weeks. <laughs> he did all of that in two weeks. And when wow. they put his name in the movie credits, his name is spelled S-T-E-P-H-E-N. In the movie credits, it's spelled S-T-E-V-E-N. They misspelled his name in the credits after all of that work. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, and I know everybody probably knows this. For a period of time, you could actually call the Ghostbusters. They set up a toll-free 800 number prior to the movie's release as a publicity stunt, and you could pick up the phone and you could call them toll-free and you would get messages from uh, Bill Murray and Dan Aykroyd. The number got so many calls, though they they had to shut it down. They just could it just couldn't keep up. It was. It was I never much. knew that. That's really fun. Yeah, that's an old yeah. school marketing campaign right there. Oh yeah. Now the Ecto One. It started off as a pink Cadillac Miller Metor ambulance, an actual ambulance that had been in use, and oh. Uh, they got it from a salvage yard, and so they had to do a makeover. And the filmmakers had planned to paint it black, jet black. But then somebody thought about it and pointed it out that the car would appear almost invisible on the camera at nighttime when you're you know, driving at night. And so they're like, well, that's stupid. So they turned around and changed it and, and did it white so you could see it. <clears throat> and 
In the script at one point, the Ectomobile possessed its own supernatural powers, I guess sort of like Kit the car, you know, whatever. But they decided, you know, they didn't want to, they didn't want to do that. Oh, I'm glad now, they didn't. I'm glad that the yeah, car did not too have much. magical powers. Yeah. Yeah, that's that, that that's too much. <clears throat> now, the voice of Zool in during post production, they couldn't find the right voice talent. They tried out a bunch of different people, and uh, Reitman just said, "This is not. This is this this is not working." But he's running out of time. So the only thing he knew to do, he deepened his own voice, and he did the voice of Zool. That's him. Because he couldn't find anybody else that could do it. Max, these are your people. Um, <laughs> these are your people. Lamar, we um, we came down to the wire on a True Weird Stuff, ep- stuff episode, and Max took on the part of a 91-year-old Yugoslavian lady <laughs> serial killer. But and if you didn't, you you wouldn't have known. If I hadn't pointed it out, Sherry wouldn't have known. No, that's how good he is at being a ninety-one-year-old so, Yugoslavian lady serial killer. So I don't, I, I don't know if I'm revealing something that you were going to, but the woman who played that part was like a model, you know that that uh, that was uh, there on when they were on the rooftop. And yes, did, were you going to say who the original no, actor no, no, that no, they were going to no. cast in that? No, no, no. Originally, they were going to cast Pee Wee Herman for that part. Really? What went wrong? It's really would. I don't know what happened, but that was that was something that they floated and then decided not to do. Because he was huge at that time. Oh, I mean, my God. Oh, big yeah. He was God. huge. Yeah. Um, Bill Murray did not get paid for this movie. $300 million box office, smash hit. And he did not get one penny. Murray's deal with Columbia was he would do it for free if they would do the movie that he wanted to make, his own passion project. And the they did. Edge. Is that yep. what it was? Yeah. Yep. And and that was his first dramatic role. It was released in 1984, and it was a flop at the box office. It lost nearly six million dollars it was a it was a remake and i didn't think he was that bad you know he i he wanted to be a serious actor and i and eventually he did become a serious actor he did and i think he just wanted to be accepted in that way as well and i i haven't seen the movie in a long time i saw it and i liked it i understood why people didn't like it but i liked it well enough that i thought it was passable Sometimes an actor can make the jump from comedy to drama in a single role, and everyone's like, absolutely, looking at you, Robin Williams and Goodwill Hunting, right? And sometimes the public needs a little more time. And I think that Stripes was so huge and Ghostbusters was so huge that the public was not ready to let go of that version of Bill Murray. I think I think and, you have to go away for a little while and just maybe. go away for a little while or something. Jim Carrey, coming off those two hits like that. Jim Carrey was able to make that leap. He was. He was Truman really Show. good. Like yeah, Truman Show, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He was wonderful and, in that as well. And the one where about with the movie theater, Max. You and I like it. No one else does. Majestic uh, yes. theater, yes. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, the, yeah I yeah. think it was called the Majestic. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah, it was yeah, yeah, Majestic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the breakout hit theme song. I don't know how many 
records that song sold. Oh my gosh. I, I, they were, I remember it was in a rotation. I don't care what radio you could flip a radio station on. And if it wasn't playing on that one, you could move a few clicks down the dial and it's playing there. I mean, I ain't afraid of was no that, ghosts. My was God. that Ray Parker Jr.? It was. Who, yeah. 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 You, you know, whatever else you want to say about Ghostbusters, Ray Parker Jr.'s kids got braces in college education. Oh, thanks yes, to that they song. did. Well, I, yes, I, did. but I think the problem that happened was they realized that it was the same melody as I Want a New Drug by Louis, uh, Huey Lewis in the News. Yeah. He sued Parker, claiming that it was too similar to his own song, I Want a New Drug. And the suit dragged on for 10 years, and they finally settled it. And the monetary figures were never released. And then Parker ended up countersuing years later, claiming that Lewis had mentioned the suit in public and was bound not to by the terms. So I don't guess they're exchanging Christmas cards each Prob- year. Probably, <laughs> probably not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had a, a, a few cameos uh, in that you probably remember. Uh, Larry King. That was the first cinematic cameo. Oh, yeah, yeah. For Larry King was in Ghostbusters. Now, one you might not be so familiar with was Ron Jeremy. Yes, that Ron Jeremy. He was in that movie? Yeah, he was. He appears as an extra among a crowd of onlookers. He later went on to star in a porn parody entitled This Ain't Ghostbusters Triple X. Yeah, he sure did. Oh, a porn parody of Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. I don't want to know what Slimer did in that. Please. <laughs> the, the other thing I'll that was kind of kooky about this, they didn't have the they didn't have the rights to the name Ghostbusters because there had been a short-lived TV show that was called Ghostbusters. So because they didn't know the, they kept on, they had it called Ghost Breakers as well as Ghostbusters for a period of time, had some signage with both. And then at some point they said, ah, oh, we'll just deal with it later. And so they, they just said, we're going to call this Ghostbusters. So they well, had to, breakers, they were, yeah. Ghost Breakers just doesn't do it. So well. I mean, they'd nah. shoot, say, you know, who are you going to call? Well, we're going to call the Ghost Breakers. All right, that's that version. Now, <laughs> take two. You're going to do this version. All right, we're going to call the Ghostbusters. And they had to do that until they realized that it just was, it, it's just cost prohibitive to do that. And they just said, ah, heck with it. We'll get sued. Did they have to pay yeah. anybody? No. So um, the guy who was the head of the studio, um, so the guy who greenlighted the movie, ended up moving over to another studio. And when he got to that studio, he was now in charge of the studio that owned the rights to the TV show. And since he liked the movie, he gave them the go-ahead. That's that's how that ended up working uh, out for them. Uh, well, that's going to do it for our deep dive into the original Ghostbusters. I hope you learned a few things that you didn't know. Next episode, we will dive into Ghostbusters Afterlife and as we're getting ready for the release of the brand new Ghostbusters. We had a great time. Hope y'all did. Either way, I expect you back next time because you know how I feel about a quitter. I hate them. Till next time. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Talkin' Lamar, the Oddcast, and the Bob and Sherry Podcast. 
we would really love it if you would subscribe, rate, and review, and share it with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, wherever you go. And thank you again for listening. Tis the month of St. Patty's Day, and here's a random related fact. Did you know that the odds of finding a lucky four-leaf clover are 1 in 10,000? I'd say that's pretty difficult. Fortunately, if you're a business owner or hiring manager, you don't need luck to find top talent for your team. You need ZipRecruiter, and right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Bob. You don't need a leprechaun when ZipRecruiter's brilliant technology is going to walk you right to that pot of gold of top talent. As soon as you post your job, ZipRecruiter powerful technology starts showing you the best qualified candidates for it. Aren't you just a wee bit curious to see how ZipRecruiter can help you? Well, today's your lucky day because you can try ZipRecruiter for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash Bob. In fact, four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Once again, just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Bob. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire.